You just get to like have a very different rhythm of life than what you have in the regular semester. And just feel like it gives the opportunity to really connect and build relationship with brothers and sisters that in the normal semester rhythm of life, we just don't connect with that much. Right. And that's always been so valuable to me. And man, it's fun to be together. Come on. Uh, you know, it, it's really important that we spend our summers well. Yes. Yeah. We've always said here that, you know, you reap in the fall what you sow in the summer. Yeah. In the fall semester, you're going to reap whatever you sow in the summer. However you spend your summer yeah. is going to dictate what your fall semester looks like. Right. And so what does our summer look like? What is it given to you? We're a few weeks in right now, and how has it been going so far? For a lot of us, we have a lot more flexibility in our schedules and what we've been doing with that. Have we been spending time with Jesus? Have we been reading good things, studying the Word, spending time in prayer, being in His presence? Or not? Right. And I want to encourage you that we can really make our summers count right. if we will just simply spend time with Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to spend time with us. Yeah. And the summer gives us kind of a, a unique opportunity out of the normal rhythm of life to do that and to hear from him in a new way. If you don't have something to read, we've got this incredible library here that has worked so hard to up for us. Full of great things. Open your Bible. Get in prayer. Spend time with Jesus. And if you do, your summer's going to count. Yeah. It's going to have a direct impact in the fall. And it's going to bear fruit. Because what God does in us, He wants to do through us. Alright, right, now we're going to get in the Word tonight. And as we do, like Jason said, we're going to be continuing our series from the spring. We've been looking at the book of Acts. And you know, in the spring, we really got to barely scratch the surface yeah. of the book of Acts. Right? And we got to cover like a small part of it. But there's so much there. And so we were just like, you know, let's just keep going. Let's just keep looking at Acts. Let's yeah. see what the Lord has for us. And so tonight, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at a vision that God gave to Peter, the Apostle Peter. And this vision had a huge impact. It was like a paradigm shift for the way the church operated. Yeah. It's like they shifted gears with this vision and they never went back. And so we're going to find this story in Acts chapter 10. We're going to start at verse 9 and read through verse 16. If you've got your Bibles, you want to open up and read with me, or it'll be on the screen. Starting in verse 9, it says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call unclean. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. But would you speak to us tonight through your word? Would you unpack your scripture for us and reveal yourself to us tonight, Jesus? Meet with us, Holy Spirit. In every prayer. Amen. Okay, so this is our passage. This is the vision that Peter had. It's a pretty wild vision, right? Yeah. So here he is. He's waiting for lunch, right? They're making lunch. He's, he's ready to eat. And all of a sudden, he falls into a trance. And he sees this. And this sheet rolls out, and there's all these animals on it, and they're unclean. Right? You know, according to the Jewish laws and customs, there were certain animals that they couldn't eat. Right. Because they were considered unclean. And if you ate them, you would be unclean. Yeah. 
But here the Lord rolls up the sheet and there's bacon. And he's like, Peter, eat it. Now, for a Jew, this is a really, really big deal. Because at the very heart of their society is this idea of being clean. That they are clean. And being unclean is about the worst thing you can be. No one wants to be unclean. And to suggest eating something unclean would be highly offensive to a Jewish person. This is a cultural point of pride that they have always had. They were God's chosen people, and they were given these rules, and they are the ones who are clean, unlike everybody else. But here God says to Peter, kill and eat. And Peter's like, no way! No way, I've never eaten anything unclean. Maybe he thought it was like a test, you know? Like, no, I'm not going to eat this bacon and be unclean. You would think maybe at this point Peter would have learned not to say no to the Lord. But, you know, God says to him this incredible statement. Do not call unclean what I have made clean. That's a pretty intense statement that God makes to Peter. And he repeats it three times. And that's significant, first of all, because when God repeats something, it means he's highlighting it. Saying this is important. On top of that, if you look at Peter and his personal history, things being repeated three times, it's kind of a big deal for him. Right? If you recall, he denied Jesus three times. And then after the resurrection, Jesus told him three times, feed my sheep. And restored him to his calling. So when God speaks to Peter the same thing three times, you have to imagine Peter sits up and takes notice. This is a big deal. And the vision ends. God takes away that, that bacon, takes away those unclean animals. And then presumably Peter eats lunch. And if you've read the book of Acts and you've read around this, you understand that the context here is that there is a Roman man named Cornelius. And Cornelius was a centurion. And he was a devout man, according to the Bible, who believed in God and wanted to serve him to the best of his ability. And God spoke to him and said, send servants to this place, to Joppa, to a man named Peter, and he will come to you. And then God spoke to Peter, and he said this, Do not call unclean what I have made clean. And then after the vision comes, Peter eats, and then here come these servants from Cornelius, saying that their master has sent them to get Peter. And so, for Peter, this is like, this is a Gentile. Okay, and the Gentiles are unclean to the Jews. They don't associate with the Gentiles. They don't like the Gentiles. They don't trust the Gentiles. Right. Especially a Roman soldier. Yeah. But God spoke to him. And so he goes. He goes with these servants to the house of Cornelius. And Cornelius has gathered together all of his friends and his family into his, into his home. And Peter shares the gospel with them. Yeah. And they repent. And they believe and they make Jesus their Lord. And right there, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. And they begin speaking in tongues. Yeah. And Peter and the other Jewish believers with him are like, what is happening? These Gentiles have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And they are completely amazed and blown away. They did not expect this. But do not call unclean what God has made clean. And so the Jews are just completely dumbfounded. They're blown away. God is moving amongst the Gentiles? He's reaching the Gentiles? So far, they've just been preaching to Jews. To this point in Acts, they've just been preaching to Jews. Now, if you were with us in the fall, uh, in the spring, you might recall the story of Philip, 
going to an Ethiopian eunuch, and that, that man was not Jewish, he was Ethiopian, right? And so he was a Gentile, and he believed and was baptized and became a believer. But for the Jews in Jerusalem, that was probably pretty out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. It's kind of one little off-on-the-side thing that happened where Philip was faithful and obeyed what God told him to do, and this man was on his way back to Ethiopia and continued to Ethiopia, and they never really saw him, right? right. Maybe they heard the story, like, wow, that's, that's interesting, but then they moved on. But now here, front and center, in front of them, God is pouring out His Spirit on a whole group of Gentiles. And they have to deal with it. They've got to reconcile with this. This is a complete shift for them. And it completely busts open the gospel going forth to the Gentiles. And there's a massive shift in their focus, ministerially, from reaching just the Jews to reaching everybody. Because the rest of the book, we're going to see... Tells large, in large part tells the story of the gospel going forth across the world to the Gentiles. Right. Now, why is the early church so shocked that this happened? Why are they so surprised that God is actually reaching out to the Gentiles, yeah. to the non-Jewish people? I mean, when we read the Bible, it kind of feels like, shouldn't this be obvious? <laughs> like, if you read through the whole Bible, if you look at the Old Testament, everywhere you see that God has a heart a few examples of this. First of all, Abraham is the father of Israel, right? Through him comes the Jews, the Jewish people. Israel comes from him. And God makes a promise to Israel, to, to Abraham, and says, Through you I'm going to make a great nation that will be a blessing to all people. That's at the very beginning of, of Israel, right? Yeah. And he repeats that promise throughout the Old Testament to, to Isaac, to Jacob, all down the line. There are many laws that were given to them that emphasize the importance of making a place for the foreigner among them yeah. to be able to come and to be able to meet God and to be able to worship Him. There's a place in the temple set aside for the foreigner to be able to come. That's one of the reasons Jesus was so mad when He cast out the, the money lenders. Right. They were using the place that was for the foreigner. So they didn't have a place to come worship. Right. We see a Syrian general named Naaman is told by a, a Jewish servant girl, hey, there's this prophet, Elisha, and God's been healing people through him, and, and Naaman got leprosy. So he goes to Elisha, and God heals him. And he's a Syrian general, an enemy yes. of Israel. We see God speak to many foreign kings, Babylonians and Persians, like Nebuchadnezzar. Right. We see throughout the Old Testament examples of this. And then we see Jesus' ministry. And he loves Gentiles too. We see a Roman centurion come to him and ask him to heal his servant. And Jesus marvels at his faith. He goes to a place called the Decapolis, which is Greek. And heals a demoniac there. That's a Greek place. He heals the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. And then after his resurrection, the last thing he tells the disciples in the Great Commission is to go make disciples of all nations, not just Israel. And he tells them to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. His heart has always been for all people. All of this is there, yet the Jewish believers somehow miss it. They think that God just wants to save the Jews. They've missed this purpose that has always been there and always been in his heart, and he's always been trying to show them. Yeah. Why do they miss that? 
I mean, we read this and it seems so obvious. But this is what God wanted to do. But see, they lived in a society and were raised in a society that believed that Jews were special. Right. They were the special ones. They were God's chosen people. Right? Yeah. They kind of ignored the fact that they were God's chosen people to bless all people. Yeah. Right. And just focus on the being chosen part. Come on. But they thought they were special and being clean was of the utmost importance because it's what made them special. Right. It's what set them apart. Yeah. And the Gentiles were unclean. They even had the laws. They were unclean. And to even associate with the Gentiles could make you unclean too. So none of them are going to do that. They don't like the Gentiles. They don't trust the Gentiles. Israel is being occupied by a foreign power right now. Yeah. And in fact, many of them believe Jesus is going to overthrow that power and establish the kingdom of Israel again. Right. And they're so surprised that God would actually speak to the Gentiles, would actually pour himself out on the Gentiles. They have blinders on to this purpose of God. And it's so entrenched in them that God has to give this intense vision to Peter to break through. Yeah. To Peter. Yeah. Who was with Jesus. And then they're confronted with Gentiles speaking in tongues, being filled with the Holy Spirit and following Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Joining the church. And they have to rethink everything. Figure out how do we deal with this? Right. What do we do with this? This totally changes it changes how they operate. Right. And they have a hard time with it. But I, I kind of have to imagine there were probably some believers who didn't have as hard a time with this as others, right? Now, if you recall, in the Gospels, Jesus spent a lot of time with prostitutes and tax collectors and kind of some of the worst of the worst sinners. And I, I kind of have a hard time imagining that, you know, like a prostitute would have a hard time believing that God would love Gentiles if God had loved them. Right. Yeah. Task workers were used to dealing with Gentiles. Right. That was probably like, yeah, okay, cool. But then for the devout Jews, it was really difficult. Yes. <laughs> because this goes against everything that they had always thought was true yeah. about how God viewed them and their people. And probably the people who had the hardest time with this would have been the Pharisees, yeah. the religious leaders, the Jews of the Jews. Yeah. Is anybody a big fan of the Pharisees? They're like, oh yeah, I love those guys. <laughs> like when we read the Gospels and we see Jesus' life, it kind of seems like he's just constantly butting heads with the Pharisees, right? right. Yeah. Like he rebukes them over and over again. He calls them a brood of vipers, says they're hypocrites. They spearhead the plot to have him killed. Yeah. I mean, we tend to think pretty negatively about the Pharisees, yeah. right? Yeah. Understand it. But let me ask you a question real quick, and let's kind of contextualize this with this question. Do you think that Jesus loved the Pharisees? Do you think he loved them? He must have, right? And so when we see him interact with them, do we read those interactions through a lens of love? Right, that's right. And if we do, how does that change those interactions? When Jesus says, you brood of vipers, is he just being harsh? And like, I'm going to get you suckers. <laughs> or is he actually speaking in love? Right. And what does it mean if he is? Yeah, come on. Yeah. It kind of changes the context, right? Yeah, right? yeah. Now, you know, one of the most powerful stories in the Bible, frankly, one of the most powerful stories in all of human history is the parable of the prodigal son. Woo. We love to call it the parable of the father's heart because it's really about him. That's right. Yeah. Now, most of us probably know this story. 
right? There's a son who goes to his father and demands that he get his inheritance now, basically saying, you're dead to me, Dad. I just want your stuff so I can enjoy myself and do what I want to do. Right. And the father gives it to him, and then he goes off to a distant land, and he blows it all living completely crazy, in all sorts of stuff, prostitutes and parties. I mean, just the craziest stuff you could possibly imagine. That's what he is doing. That's how he's spending his money, spending his time. And then when you live your life that way, you run out of money, so he does. And he's at rock bottom. All of his friends leave him because they were only there for the parties and for the money. And he's at rock bottom. And he finds himself in this place where he is feeding pigs just to try to scrape by. That's the only work he can find. And for a Jewish person, I mean, that is like the worst thing. Pigs are unclean. And he's so hungry and so desperate. He's looking at the food. He's feeding the pigs. And he's like, I think I need that. And then he remembers his father's house. And he remembers how his father treated his servants. How they were cared for. They were well fed. And he realizes that he is messed up. And he's like, you know, I'm not worthy to be my father's son anymore. But maybe he would take me on as a servant and I can at least eat. And so he decides he's going to walk home. He's going to apologize and ask if his father would just take him on as a servant. And so he heads home. But then as he gets close, his father sees him at a distance and runs to him and embraces him. Only literally smells like a pigsty. Puts a ring on his finger, a rope on his back, and shoes on his feet. Says, my son is home. And he throws a huge party. Because he's so glad to have his home, son home. And this is a beautiful picture of God's heart for the lost. Yeah, that's right. And you know who Jesus told that story to? Who the audience was for that parable. I feel like we kind of tend to think it's probably, you know, like those, those sinful people, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, right? Like, come home. God, God wants you to come home. Yeah. But he actually was talking to the Pharisees oh, when he told this story. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. That was the context that he told this story. And in that context, it's really not about the prodigal son at all. Now, in the story, if you've read it, you know the father actually had another son. That's right. The prodigal son was a younger brother, and he had an older son. And if we look at how this famous parable ends in Luke 15, verses 25 to 32, it says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. That you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Now the older brother in this story parallels the Pharisees and the religious leaders who Jesus is actually talking to. Right. And so in the context of the conversation he's having, this brother is the one that he's trying to get them to connect with. Yeah. This brother's angry 
Because he thinks this is unfair. He stayed home. He's been running the household, taking care of the fields, doing all the work. He's never gotten a feast. His brother wanted to live wild. And he gets this big party for him. Is that fair? Is his anger justified? So the older brother's anger is rooted in a very wrong idea that he has. He thinks that he is better than his younger brother. And that is the idea that his anger is coming from. He thinks, I'm the good son. That My brother, he's the bad one. I'm better than him. I deserve better than him. That's what he thinks. But the reality is, he's not actually better than his younger brother at all. That's right. And it's actually all right there in the story. Yeah. We can see it. See, the younger brother took his inheritance. He spent it selfishly in this wild life. He didn't love his dad. He was only after what he could get from his dad. Right. He was selfish. And then later in the story, he realizes he's been wrong. You see him say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's true. He's not. Meanwhile, the older brother stayed home. He's been doing all this work. He said, running the household, take care of the fields, the servants, running everything. Like he's taking care of his responsibilities, right? Unlike his brother. However, in this society, one of the most important responsibilities that an older brother would have is to look after his younger siblings. To make sure they don't do anything that's going to bring shame on the family. And if they do go off acting crazy, his job is to go get them. And yet, his younger brother leaves, and he does nothing. He says, all right, good riddance. And this would have been the expectation in their culture. That the older brother would have gone and gotten the younger brother and brought him home. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't even try. So he's not actually living up to his responsibility. Right. And his duties. And beyond that, it's clear that he's actually no closer to his father than the younger brother is. Right. Yeah. Now, in the story, you'll notice the father sees his son coming from a distance away. And that's not because he just happened to look up at the right moment. Oh, hey, my boy. He's been looking for him. He's been longing for his son. And every day he's out there looking like, oh, I hope he'll come home today. I hope he'll come home today. And then when he shows up, he sees him because he's been looking for him. And he runs to him. And it's obvious that his heart has been longing for his lost son. And if the older brother was at all close to his father, he would have seen that. And if he loved him, it would have compelled him. If duty didn't, his love for his father would have compelled him to go get his brother. And to bring him home. But he didn't. And in fact, he's angry that his brother is home. And this reveals his heart. Because he doesn't love his dad any more than the younger brother did. But why is he doing all the things he's doing? Why is he doing all this work? It's not because he loves his dad. Because he thinks he's going to be rewarded. See, he really wants what he can get from his father too. All he really wants is his own inheritance. He's just going about it a different way. He's still selfish. There's no difference in intimacy with the father. There's no difference in love for him between the older brother and the younger. They're the same. And so he's mad when the younger brother returns because he got a reward. And that's all he's been after this whole time. 
They can't think of anything but himself. And so we see he's no better than his younger brother. He's just as selfish. He's just as wicked in his heart. Right. And in this brief story, Jesus paints a picture of the heart of the Pharisees. And really, by extension, of the Jewish people who they are the leaders of. Right. They're doing the right things. They've memorized the law. They recite the Torah every day. They're always in the temple. They're always following all hundreds of ceremonial laws to the T, making sure that they're clean. But they don't love God. Right. That's right. And they're not close to Him. And they don't know Him. They look down at all these people who don't follow the laws, who sin, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the Gentiles. But they're no closer to God's heart than they, those sinners are. And if they actually loved him, they'd care about what he cares about. But if they were near to him, they'd see his yearning for the very people that they look down on. Yeah. And now here's Jesus. And he is following the law. And he is close to God. And he's eating with tax collectors and prostitutes and the worst of the worst. And they're actually repenting. Yeah. And their lives are actually changing. And they're actually meeting God. And the Pharisees hate it. They're mad about it. Like, why are you doing this? This isn't how it's supposed to be. Because they don't love God. They only want something from Him. And how does God respond to this? How does the Father respond to the older brother? In the parable. He's patient. He goes to Him. And he's entreating him, please come in and feast with us. Come into the feast. In the parables, when Jesus talks about a feast, he's pretty much always talking about being in the kingdom. Being close to God. He's inviting them in. Graciously, impatiently. Please come in. I love you too. Jesus loves the Pharisees. And God loves the Pharisees. But because the father won't recognize that the older brother is better than the younger brother, like he thinks, he doesn't want to go in. And he's keeping himself outside in his anger. The reality is he's not better than his brother. The Pharisees are not better than the prostitutes or the tax collectors or even the hated Gentiles. And the Jews are no better than them. And God shows no partiality and all equally need grace. And they have missed this purpose of God's heart from the beginning. Right. Yeah. We have all been selfish. Even if our feet haven't left home, if we've been in the church our whole lives, our hearts have wandered far from our Father. Yeah. Like both brothers in the parable. Come on. Yeah. This is why they're so shocked that God pours himself out on the Gentiles. Their hearts have not been near to God. They hadn't seen his longing for those that they looked at with disdain. His yearning for the nations, for all people to know him. So what does this mean for us today? We look at this vision. We're probably all pretty cool with the idea of Gentiles coming to faith. Honestly, there might not be a person in here who's not a Gentile. (laughs) So what can we learn from this vision? Do not call unclean 
what God has made clean. Right. Yeah. Right. Do not call unclean what God has made clean. Yeah. Is there anyone around us that we view as unclean? That we think maybe we're better than? I mean, certainly there's a lot of people around us who are unclean. But the reality is that's our story. We were unclean. And that was the reality for the early church. They were unclean. Yet Jesus said it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a person. It's what comes out of their heart. And all of them had fallen short. They were all unclean. Even they were eating the right things. They were living kosher, but they were unclean in the eyes of God. And that's the irony for the Jews, and especially the Pharisees, who thought they could be clean by doing all the right things. And this is what Jesus meant in Matthew 23, 27 to 28, when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He knew their hearts. They were selfish. And he's not just roasting them. He loved them. He's trying to urge them, but you see that you're dead inside and you need God to do something for you. Just like they do. You're not different or special. Or better. They were just as selfish as anyone else. Yeah. And that's our story too. That's right. Yeah. We were all unclean. Yeah. Yes. We were all sinners, selfish, wicked. Even if we were raised in the church. And that's what I was like. I grew up in the church and everyone looked at me like, oh, what a good kid. I did all the right things. But I only wanted what I thought I could get from God. My heart wasn't any closer to His than someone who never stepped foot in the church. We all fall short, and that's why Jesus came. He came for the Gentiles. He came for the Jews. He came for the Pharisees. He came for the prostitutes, the tax collectors. He came for me, and He came for you. And He died on the cross, and He shed His blood so that all of us who are unclean could be made clean by God. And the only way that any of us could ever be clean is to be washed in the blood of Jesus Amen. who makes us white as snow. That's right. Only the blood of Jesus. And all of our good works are as filthy rags. They don't mean anything. Yeah. We're not clean because of what we do. Only because Jesus gave himself for us. That's right. And that should have a huge impact on our lives and on how we view people. We should be the most humble people in the world. That's right. Because we know that it's only grace that we don't deserve that allows us to stand before God. That's right. Like the old hymn says, we are righteous. We've been blessed enough to receive grace from a good Father. He wants to give that grace to those around us too. And every single person that we meet Every person we ever interact with, every person we see on TV or the internet or anywhere has the potential to meet Jesus and to be completely transformed, to be made clean. 
Let us not be people who call unclean what God has made clean. That's right. What He wants to make clean. I mean, that's the story of all of us. That's, we've seen that play out over and over again in our community. Right. People who met Jesus in shame from all sorts of walks of life. Yeah. From the craziest things. You name it, and we've seen Jesus deal with it. Yes, yes. To bring healing and freedom and clean us. Any people in our community, on campus, at work, that we see anywhere in our society. We're all made in the image of God, and He loves them all. And if we look down on anybody, that's a Pharisee attitude. Come on. Come on. We should look at every person as someone that Jesus died for and loves and has the potential to transform into His image. Just like we have been changed. Because we met Jesus. We must be people who believe that same thing for everyone around us. Yeah. No matter what they look like, no matter what lifestyle they're in, no matter how deep they are in sin, we don't call unclean, but God has made clean. Yeah. And He's made us clean. Is there anyone in our lives who we haven't wanted to engage with the gospel because we thought, there's no way. There's no way. But they would ever believe this. I mean, look at them. Look at their life. Look at what they're living for. Look at the things that they choose and their lifestyle. There's no way. They don't want to hear this. Assuming they're not going to respond. But we have been called to make disciples everywhere. Yeah. And Jesus has changed our lives. Yeah. He gave himself for us. That's not something we're meant to just hold on to. And every single person he knows and he loves. And he wants to transform their lives and make them clean like he's done for us. What he's done in us, he wants to do through us. Are we letting him do that? Really? Fully? It's our responsibility to obey. And if we love him, we will see his yearning. Yeah, that's right. And we won't be like the older brother. We will go after our younger brothers. Yeah. Let me be clear, I'm not saying we're trying to like convince people to live lives that are clean, to leave their sin. That's never been the answer. That's that would have been the way the Pharisees tried to do it. Like, well, you gotta start following all these rules. Right, right. The rules of that relationship leads to rebellion. Yeah. And we don't come to people trying to convince them to follow the law when they don't know Jesus. The reality is, we were all unclean. And the only thing that has cleaned us is Jesus and His blood. Our approach to people, to everyone, from the most wild sinner you can imagine, to the church kid who's super tough because they think they know him, is to say, Come, me, a man who changed everything for me. Come, me, Jesus. You gotta meet him. He'll change everything. That's right. And our job is just to bring them to him. That doesn't mean that we don't challenge sin in people's lives, but only when they know Jesus. Yeah. yeah. Right. Verse 2, you can go ahead and come back up as we move towards the cross. So what do you do with this tonight? What do our hearts look like? 
Is there anything in us that looks like the older brother? Like the Pharisees? Like the Jewish believers who can never imagine Gentiles actually loving God? Right. Is there anything in us that thinks we're justified because we do the right things? That looks down on somebody else? Because they don't. We have to remember, our brothers and our sisters, we are sinners saved by grace. Yeah. And only by grace. Yeah. We should be the most humble people. Yeah, that's right. So easily we transition from being the younger brother who's come home to being like the older brother. Yeah. And thinking we belong here. We deserve right. this. Right. Thank God he loves Pharisees. That's right. He loves Pharisees. I was a Pharisee. And quite a few Pharisees got saved. You see Nicodemus and his story. Yeah. There's church legends about Gamaliel and even Caiaphas. Yeah. And we see there's this guy named Paul. Woo. Pharisee of Pharisees. That God's chosen apostle to the Gentiles was a Pharisee. Yeah. Yeah. Named Paul. That's right. So let's repent of any attitude like this in us so that he can use us. Amen. And he will. Yeah. Who's in our life that really needs Jesus? Is there anybody that we think is beyond his reach? We've almost given up on him. He hasn't given up on him. That's right. And his heart has always been for all people to know him. Let's believe that way and let's repent of anything in us I would say we're better than or they are beyond reaching. In a minute we're going to pray. We're going to meet with Jesus. We're going to repent if we need to repent. We're going to ask Him to help us. Some call unclean and God is made clean. Yeah. We're going to meet with Jesus and we're going to pray for people in our lives. And then tomorrow... This weekend on Monday when we go into our summer classes, when we go into work, we go where we go. Let's go and let's boldly share the gospel. Because Jesus wants to do something in the lives of the people here in this town, on this campus, this summer. And if we will act in faith and believe that he wants to make people clean, we're going to see him move. And there are going to be stories this summer people meeting Jesus yeah. and their lives completely changing. Let's come make disciples this summer. Yeah. Let's not wait for the fall. Yeah, God wants to do something now. Let's meet Jesus tonight. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Jesus, that you came for us. And that by your blood that we don't deserve, we have been saved, God. Thank you, Jesus. We don't deserve you, but we're grateful. And God, would you kill anything in our hearts that thinks we deserve this, that would look down on someone else because they don't do the things that we're supposed to do. But God, we know you love them and you long for them, Jesus. And we pray you move in their lives like you moved in ours. But they meet you be made clean for the washing of your blood and make new creations, Jesus. Would you help us to have faith for that, to believe for that, to pray for that, to act 
to see that happen, to share your love and your truth and who you are and what you've done in our lives with those that you've placed in our lives right now. Do you have your way in us, Jesus? Help us, God. Let me pray. Let's find a place to meet with Jesus. You can come to the front or the side or just meet with him in your chair. Let's repent. We look like Pharisees at all. And let's lift up the people in our lives, especially the ones that we may have thought were beyond the reach of Jesus. And ask him to make them clean. Let's meet with Jesus.